It's a pleasure and an honor to introduce Professor Michael Dodson, who comes to us from uh, Indiana University at Bloomington, where he's associate professor in the Department of History. Before joining Indiana, Michael taught at the University of Cambridge in their Oriental Studies Department, and he also got his PhD from Cambridge in 2003. Between then and now, uh, the list of publications is very impressive and extensive. There's Orientalism, Empire, and National Culture, India 1770 to 1880. This is the Indian edition. And many articles uh, which have appeared in such uh, prestigious journals as uh, Modern Nation Studies, Comparative Studies in Society and History, <laughs> Modern Intellectual History. So I'm not going to give you a whole list of his entire CV. And, but let me just say that uh, of his forthcoming publications, many of which have to do with the history of architecture and urban history, the one that caught my attention uh, for its sheer ambitiousness and is going to be a gift to us all when it comes out is a textbook project called A History of South Asia from 1000 to 2000 CE. Um, before I close this introduction, let me just remark on one thing that has always struck me in reading Michael's work, and that has been his exquisite attention to questions of locality. And the way he builds up through minute attention, minute and meticulous attention to archives, how he opens up the, from the local to questions of national power and politics. The local has remained a constant. And uh, in the first book, it was the Benares Sanskrit College. But the stance has shifted from a history of pedagogy and politics to that of urban history. So please join me in welcoming Professor Michael Dodson. Thank you very much um, for a, a really very nice introduction. And um, thank you to Depeche as well for the introduction or for the uh, invitation. Um, this is a highly experimental literature. So let me uh, begin with that. Um, it's the kind of the final uh, attempt to work out uh, what is a, a project which is becoming incredibly amorphous um, and, and probably rather too large as well, which is an attempt to write a history of uh, a number of small cities uh, in northern India in the late 19th and the early 20th century, um, focused primarily on the region of uh, what's now eastern Uttar Pradesh, Jaunpur, Mirzapur, Ghazipur, um, and of course, Benares, which is primarily the city I'll be talking about today, although we do range uh, into a, a couple of other uh, areas as well. And I should say also, um, in favor of the, the notion of locality here, there's, uh, or, uh, there's uh, most of what's driving uh, this project is stuff that's coming out of um, the Uttar Pradesh Regional Archive in Varanasi, um, where I spend uh, many weeks each year um, fighting and clawing for every single document that I can get my hands on. Um, and, you know, sh I guess I should also uh, preface this by saying that the archive is in terrible shape um, and uh, in a, a very fast decline as well. And so the, the, the documentation that's coming out of it, uh, that, I'm, that I'm taking out of it, um, is, is really very partial in many respects. So we're getting I think I'll uh, preface this by just saying I'm going to provide you glimpses uh, of this period of time. Okay, so I will uh, read so that I uh, don't just kind of wander off and tell you uh, kind of whatever's on my mind at the moment. Um, histories of the city in modern South Asia have long recognized the key role of the colonial state in defining appropriate urban and architectural paradigms, as well as in creating and maintaining the cultural meaning of built structures, new and old. Tom Metcalf for example, argued that British architecture in India represented the authority of the colonial state, embodying, in essence, what he called an assertion of conquest. While Metcalf does acknowledge an indissoluble contradiction within the aims of British architecture, namely the simultaneous desire of Britons to proclaim themselves an enduring empire and also to promote a transformation of Indian society on a British model, Metcalf never substantially questioned the ability of Britons to effectively communicate such meetings within the Indian public sphere. As an epistemic model of colonialism, this has been extended beyond the creation of meaningfulness for British architecture to the ability of Britons to effectively refashion meaning for Indian architectural and cultural objects, 
uh, argued most famously, of course, by Bernard Cohen, who asserted that it was the British who, quote, defined in an authoritative and effective fashion how the value and meaning of the objects produced or found in India were to be determined, end quote. These studies of colonial epistemic reordering are at least now 20 years old, and few may view them as anything more than a starting point in analyses of the ways in which the historicity of built space during the period of colonial rule in South Asia is to be understood. Certainly in recent years, many writing on South Asian city space have attempted to perceive measures of fluidity and ambiguity not found in these earlier studies by presenting the city as a disputed dialogic space of sorts one in which the roles of local inhabitants in the creation of a city's character are highlighted. Preeti Chopra has written recently on the importance of incorporating what she calls vernacular architectural processes in analyses of colonial Bombay, arguing that the ways in which local inhabitants perceived the character of their neighborhood had important, if ultimately somewhat limited, impacts upon colonial urban policy. In addition, she notes that residents actually held much control over the architectural forms to be found within certain bounded quarters. Bombay was less a colonial city, in her view, than it was a hybrid set of spaces. Uh, Jyoti Hosagraha had similarly drawn attention to the negotiated character of colonial Delhi, arguing that while the city post-1857 reflected many overtly colonial characteristics following its partial raising, even the neoclassical town hall completed in 1866 was in effect hybridized through the incorporation of a Mughal-style Darbar hall. Equally, Hosagraha argues that Delhi's residents effectively subverted attempts at colonial regulation and control through practices of encroachment, litigation, and personal and financial negotiation with the colonial state. This was a process in which residents retook local control of the constructed landscape by building and encroaching freely until confronted with urban regulatory mechanisms. In the physical and epistemic reordering of the built landscape in small urban centers, of the eastern United Provinces, Banaras, Jaunpur, Mirzapur, Ghazipur in particular, one might find many examples of such architectural hybridity and negotiated use value. For the first, we need look no further than the architecture of Frederick Ortel, the superintending engineer of the Public Works Department for the region around Banaras in the early 20th century. In debates over modern Indian architectural design, spurred on by the announced construction of a new capital in 1911, Ortel, after a long residence in India, forcefully advocated for the incorporation of what, again, what he called indigenous elements into all PWD buildings, rather than the transplantation of English design into the subcontinent. This was a strategy of adapting a version of Indian architectural style to what he called modern use, and he conceived such architectural hybridity as most appropriate to the peculiar climactic and social conditions of India as well as being conducive to a reawakening of an independent indigenous Indian architecture. Thus, Ortel, together with his Indian draftsmen and builders, made extensive use of the chaja, an overhanging slab cornice, for new structures such as the Indo-Saracenic Saraswati Bhavan, completed in 1910, which was the library for Banaras's older High Gothic Sanskrit college. Equally, there are many examples within the extant archival record of the ways in which Banaras' residents adapted British urban design or land use management strategies through such practices as road encroachment, flaunting of city bylaws, or the occupation and transformation of historic structures, including the dynastic necropolis of the Banaras branch of the Mughal royal family, Fatiman Bag. While the focus upon forms of dialogue, and we can understand this here, I don't particularly like the term, but we can understand it, I think, very broadly as architectural adaptation and practices of urban inhabitation. It seems to me that these, this is an appropriate development upon the approach of Cohen or Metcalf. But it doesn't in itself do much to substantiate the notion of power dynamics or the horizons of possibility in the processes of rewriting the cultural meaningfulness of the North Indian urban landscape. So what I'm interested to do in my current project is to move somewhat further away from this sort of dialogic approach, away from an examination of a physical interface of a relatively undifferentiated colonial state and the Indian vernacular, again to use Chopra's terminology, and away from questions of how Indians adapted to and lived in British design cities to instead revisit a state-centered analysis. But I'm interested to use that revisiting as an opportunity to highlight the complexity 
of the structural features of the colonial state and its forms of governance. This is not to argue that the colonial state's Indian subjects are irrelevant in an, any analysis of social and cultural change. Quite the opposite, in fact. But it is, I believe, through an examination of the structural features of the colonial state that one can glimpse either the nature of the circumscription or their promotion, perhaps the making potential, of such forms of interaction and negotiation. This is a conceptualization of the colonial state as essentially transactional. This paper is based in an examination of attempts by local state and non-state actors in and around the city of Benares to come to terms with and to implement the stipulations of Act 7 of 1904, the Ancient Monuments Act, which was passed during the viceroyship of Lord Curzon to preserve, isolate, and fix in perpetuity the historical built landscape of the subcontinent. In my larger project, I understand this act as a crucial element of the colonial impulse to reorder the meaningfulness of urban India, or rather to transform the cityscape into a sort of narrative construction. This larger process was composed of a number of interweaving strategies, including the designation of privately owned structures as essentially non-modern spaces. It was also partly an exercise in addition, of course, which in Benares at least was constituted by large-scale demolition and the building of new structures which signified particular European civilizational qualities. And this is where I get to just show you some nice pictures, basically. Um, we can take as examples the early neoclassical institutions of church and state. Right? So uh, this is Chaitganjtana, a police station uh, constructed in the uh, probably the early 1840s, uh, and London Mission Church, constructed in the same era. Of course, both sporting prominent Doric columns out front. Equally, from a somewhat later period, we can note the colonial state's construction in Benares of civic institutions, such as the 1913 Indo-Saracenic uh, civil courthouse designed by the consulting architect to the government of India, John Begg, the late 19th century water distribution plant at Baidanigat, and the crafting, again, of a rationalized market square. Uh, this was done in several places in Benares, but most prominently in Chauk, um, which constructs, uh, again, an open space with well-planned shop fronts, police station, post office, and clock tower, um, and basically raised the old uh, congested Chauk area of the city. The central concern of the paper today is, however, not related to new construction, but related to how historical and cultural signifiers for long-established architectural sites were refashioned through local bureaucratic transactions and in particular how historic architectural monuments, and in particular I'm really going to be speaking mostly about mosques today, um, embedded within urban contexts were to be understood as a part of that larger urban setting. This was a process of converting a structure from its historical function and reimagining it into an essentially presentist form of commemoration. To ground this process conceptually I make use of a conceit. What I understand as the spatial imagination of colonial bureaucracy and governance. This draws on the notion that the colonial state's bureaucratic apparatus conceptualizes the relationship between the city and the historical monument in much the same way that it understands its own administrative structuring. That is, both spatially and hierarchically. The first component of this formulation is the way in which a city, in which city space was imagined by state and non-state actors interacting with bureaucratic institutions within northern India, and in particular the ways in which local... Um, sorry, uh, I'll, let me start that again, it's rather complicated. Um, the first component of this formulation is the way in which city space was imagined by state and non-state actors interacting with bureaucracies, and in particular the ways in which local urban phenomena were conceptually related through these institutions to a larger city-wide fabric. There's a slip here in essence, between local and translocal, between the monument and the city, between the city and the nation, resulting in a range of kind of spatial relationships. There's perhaps no city in northern India where this process is more in evidence during the colonial period than Benares. Bureaucratic institutions ranging from the Public Works Department and the Archaeological Survey of India to local municipal boards, the uh, the collector's office, the district collector's office, all sought to manage a normative relationship between what can be understood as projected visions of the religious character of the city and that city's status as reflecting the historical character of the Indian nation. 
In other words, bureaucratic institutions and a range of actors who engaged with them participated jointly in an imagining of certain conceptual linkages between the highly local, the conceptual, and the national. Okay? This was, in fact, a desire to see the whole from the part. For Benares, in particular, this is a conceptualization of the city as a representation of India as a whole. Antique, sacred, diverse, and, of course, largely Hindu. And this is kind of a key element as well that I tried to uh, discuss in my book on Banara Sanskrit College. The reason why Banara Sanskrit College is so important is because it's conceived as a center and that if you can uh, introduce useful knowledge and kind of a proto-Christianity uh, into Banaras, then it will trickle down through uh, kind of the social structures of Banaras and out into the rest of the country. Um, so this is the idea that um, if you uh, that missionaries also have, if you conquer Banaras, you conquer all of India, because it is in some sense uh, representative. The second way one can describe the spatial imagination of colonial governance relates to the spatial organization of bureaucratic institutions themselves and the way in which such institutions understood their own functioning through vertical and horizontal structures, that is, structures of hierarchy and breadth. Bureaucracies, after all, were composed of people situated at a distance from one another, organized into component parts with differing responsibilities. Equally, bureaucracies function to collectivize social action through an individuation of action, that is, they are mechanisms for organizing and enabling collective action through the assignation of particular tasks to individuals. In this regard, a bureaucracy functions to link highly localized components to translocal components, whether state, level, national, or imperial, within a series of relationships that can be understood as mutually constitutive. Part of the relevance, I think, of approaching urban history through an examination of the structures of governance, and in particular through bureaucracy, is that it serves in the first instance to highlight the importance of the essentially mundane within colonialism. Bureaucracy served in many cases to structure the nature of the colonial state's interaction with Indian subjects through a series of everyday basic routine transactions, both at the internal and the external interfaces of bureaucracy, that is within the bureaucratic state structure itself, so between the sub-collector uh, and the commissioner and the collector, these sorts of things, um, as well as in that structure's interaction with wider Indian society. But rather than viewing this mundaneness as being linked to the perpetuation of a sort of official bureaucratic mindset, okay, I propose that we instead look upon the functioning of bureaucratic structures in India as being culturally and ideologically productive, following here on the recent work in particular of Arundam Datta. Let's see, if we move away from the notion of bureaucracy as repressive, and this is a, a notion I think is probably best encapsulated in Bertrand Russell's work, um, who describes bureaucratic structures as a tyranny of officials. If we move away from this and take as our starting point the second formulation I made of bureaucracy's spatial imagination, in short, its cognizance of its own spatial organization of functioning, then we can begin to formulate a sense of how bureaucratic institutions are in fact culturally productive. In particular, how they, through their own gradual evolution, serve to mediate local and national prerogatives, and through mundane transactions, attempt to promote a series of concurrences on issues important to the perpetuation of governance. So with this kind of framework out of the way, I think what we should do now is to turn to a discussion of what I'm calling kind of national conservation measures, but also local imperatives. And it's this link here, which I think is kind of crucial for understanding uh, the transformation of North India's cityscapes and also the way in which that transformation is linked to the, uh, governance in particular. Before the second half of the 19th century, the recordation and conservation of architectural sites deemed to be of antiquarian or historical value was largely relegated to an informal sphere. In 1815, for example, the magistrate of Jaunpur, in his annual report to the Governor-General, could do little but note the fast decaying infrastructure of his medieval city, including in particular the famous Gomti River Bridge, which had been commissioned by Emperor Akbar. And he wondered aloud, for example, whether a certain Captain McPherson of the 24th Native Infantry, stationed nearby Benares, might be convinced to bring his rumored architectural training to bear on the myriad structural problems Jaunpur labored under. During the 1860s and 70s, however, 
A number of archaeological surveys were irregularly constituted at the national and the provincial levels, though these might best be described in these years as principally being, being devoted to information gathering rather than to any kind of regularization of conservation practices per se. The Archaeological Survey of the Northwestern Provinces, though, formed in 1868, reported on the history and physical condition of the buildings within the Mughal Fort at Agra, with specific recommendations made to the Lieutenant Governor for their repair and conservation. Indeed, even after the re-establishment of the National Archaeological Survey of India in 1871, the principal impetus to the conservation of India's uh, monumental architectural heritage was largely localized within Indian governmental structures. The Government of India issued an order in February of 1873, for example, directing local governments to assume the responsibility through the offices of its public works department, uh, executive engineers, to report on and to suggest measures for the protection of buildings of, quote, architectural or historical interest, end quote. And in cases where such structures were in private hands, to influence their owners to preserve them from falling into ruin. This is, of course, just one of many things that the, public, uh, the provincial public works departments had to do. Um, they primarily handled road building, the construction of civil uh, infrastructure, um, and other kinds of uh, uh, sewage works, things like this. Um, but they were also responsible for architectural heritage. The creation of the position of curator of ancient monuments in India in 1881, a role filled for the three years of, ex of its existence by Henry Hardy Cole, the son of Sir Henry Cole, who was, of course, a key commissioner of the Great Exhibition of 1851, would, in contrast, seem on the face of it to have been, a principally, in to have been principally intended to centralize, um, at a national level, the oversight of Indian historical architecture. Cole did certainly recognize in his position as curator a central overarching authority for Indian monuments conservation. Thus, in 1883, when the term of his curatorship was about to expire and return direct responsibility for historic architecture to provincial governments, Cole argued to his superiors that uh, for basically for the advantages of a central office, as he called it, by reference to notions of economy, uniformity, continuity, of course, and systematization. For example, Cole perceived in his office an ability to oversee repairs to the best of Indian architecture through the consistent perpetuation of a single set of ideological practices and physical techniques. He also sought, through his office, to make the wider cultural significance of such historical monuments understandable under the highly generalized rubric of, quote, Indian architecture, end quote. Cole, in other words, saw in his office an essentially panoptic function, both in terms of conservational methodology and historical interpretive strategy. Yet simultaneously, Cole also sought to displace many of the elements of responsibility for conservation, that is, what he called its essential locus of action, to highly local government officials. He conceived that district-level officials would be charged with the arduous task of continually removing vegetation from structures, and those same individuals, those same officials, would designate and oversee Indian custodians for particular sites. It would also be local officials, Cole thought, who could best encourage what he called Indian local interest in architectural preservation, which he deemed essential to the longer-term success of measures of protection. Moreover, the financial basis for such conservation efforts was understood by Cole to be forthcoming from central government only in cases in which a structure was of imperial interest and importance. In essence, Mughal stuff and uh, Buddhist. In all other cases, it was uh, local government and native rulers who were expected to foot the bill. This attempt at localizing conservation practice within a national rubric had a number of effects. Cole's predominant focus upon monuments of imperial interest and his apparent desire to write a national architectural narrative concentrated his attentions upon sets of structures which stood apart from urban contexts, such as those at Sanchi, Sarnath, Ajanta, Kujaraho, or those that were relatively self-enclosed, such as found in Madurai and Tanjore, um, as well as, of course, Mughal sites at Agra, Delhi, and Lahore. Consequence, his ability to effectively superintend, and arguably his ability to contextualize and even enumerate sites of more immediately local urban importance was substantially circumscribed. Cole did note, though, the imperial Sharki mosques found in the provincial town of Jaunpur, the Jami, Atala, and Laldarwaza masjids, he noted that these were the city's most notable historic structures in need of government intervention. In that enumeration, however, 
he omitted a substantial number of other structures of at least equal architectural, historical, and indeed social merit located in the city. And he also, of course, omits entirely uh, other important Sharkey monuments found outside the city. Moreover, when it comes time to consider Benares in his 1881 report, Cole is forced to lament that his visit there was too short to have allowed him to gain an appreciation of its built environment and conservation needs. It was the riverfront ghats, temples, and palaces, however, which he believed uh, required immediate attention from government, despite being largely in private hands. He mentions here only the Vishwanath Mandir, the city's preeminent but relatively modern temple, and Guslagat, which is probably Bonslagat, privately owned and the site of the palace of the Raja of Nagpur. The city's architectural and historic structure seems to have eluded coal by reason of its sheer density, and indeed he never returned to the subject of that city in his official capacity. Cole was not alone in these difficulties. The Director General of Archaeology, John Marshall, in a set of 1904 conservation notes focused on Benares, um, only could enumerate a small set of structures which might be perceived as standing apart from the city. The stupa, of course, at Sarnat, the old ruined fort at the north of the city, at Rajgat, and the tomb of Lal Khan, which stands in the midst of a large garden, again in the north of the city. Um, in essence, I, I want to just kind of skip a little bit because you um, can see time is moving on. But there's a there's a, a, a noted uh, kind of uh, tendency in a lot of British literature, uh, in particular about Benares in the, in the 19th and 20th century. And this is the inability to see the city. Um, and this is why kind of uh, riverfront uh, views dominate uh, when we talk about Benares. So uh, you'll have uh, many, many publications which deal, uh, again, which want document minutely each gut, each palace on, on the riverfront, but there's very little uh, about what's behind. And in essence, there is this notion that um, you have a kind of an internal and an external face to Benares. The external is its public face, and the internal face is a private face that no one can actually see and no one really can understand. Well, the, the abolition of the position of the curator of ancient monuments in 1883 saw the central government again shift all responsibility for care and protection of objects of archaeological interest um, back onto a local government. But on, under the viceroyship of Lord Curzon, the principal legislative framework was finally set up for the elaboration of a more regularized state bureaucracy for, of historical architectural conservation. In a 1900 speech to the Asiatic Society of Calcutta, Curzon articulated his sense that such conservation was amongst the highest of the government's obligations, an obligation he felt to be incurred both by virtue of their general duty to their ancestors and descendants, but also by the peculiar conditions found in India. It's, of course, our climate, the ignorant population, as he says, um, and um, these sorts of things. Curzon moreover felt that the conservation of structures uh, was to be determined solely on their historical and architectural merit, or their artistic merit, and not upon theological or political origins. In particular, Curzon viewed the British government of it, its status as foreign to the subcontinent to render it peculiarly suited to the preservation of a range of historic structures, similarly foreign, whether it be Greek or Turkic in origin. Yet equally, the current British government of India should be understood to have distinguished itself from uh, earlier conquerors through its seeking to protect the physical remains of earlier dynasties, rather than raising them to the ground. This is Kirsten's idea. While Kirsten recognized that many of his predecessors had been less than scrupulous in this regard, um, he sought to do better. And the, perhaps the best example of this is, in fact, Banara Sanskrit College, built in the 18, early 1850s, um, which was uh, most of its bricks are actually taken from uh, the Buddhist stupas at Sarnat. I interpret Curzon and his well-known fixation with monuments as essentially, as essentially repudiating an earlier British indulgence in the picturesque effect of Indian architectural ruination. This is in particular in the work of Hodges and Daniels. His speech to the Asiatic Society was a declaration that the 20th century colonial state would challenge the natural processes of decay and ruination, producing for itself a sort of immortality in the historical landscape it preserved. After all, Curzon asked if his government did not preserve India's historical structures, quote, how can we expect at the hands of futurity any consideration for the productions of our own time, end quote. 
Again, part of the problem here is considerable confusion over respective responsibilities. Um, there are substantial questions in this period about whether the archaeological survey is ultimately responsible for not only studying but also conserving the subcontinent's built heritage or whether this fell to provincial governments and their public works departments. In many cases, the distinct parts of the colonial state work together, but equally the question of responsibility also raised the specter of how such conservation work was to be funded in the absence of central government sponsorship. In most cases, the funds were raised locally, either through the public works department budget or through community-based organizations, such as the Kashitirta Sudar Trust, established in 1926 by the leading gentlemen of Benares, including, importantly, Raja Motichand, for the repair of Tulsigat. But it might be noted, again, that as late as 1924, there's still considerable confusion about this issue, in particular in cities such as Jaunpur. Kirshen's principal piece of legislation then intended to secure the British state's immortality through the fixing of the historic Indian landscape was Act 7 of 1904, the Ancient Monuments Preservation Act. This is to, quote, provide for the preservation of ancient monuments, for the exercise of control over traffic in antiquities and over excavation, and for the protection and acquisition of ancient monuments of, uh, and of objects of archaeological, historical, or artistic interest, end quote. In particular, Curzon was interested that this act delineate the specific nature of local government responsibilities for conservation and the manner in which the central government was to establish oversight and control over the standard of techniques used for preservation and repair. The act therefore provided a framework which defined the nature of governmental responsibilities at the district, provincial, and national levels for the declaration, oversight, and maintenance of a protected monument. As well, the Act outlined the procedures for the acquisition of ownership or guardianship of a historic structure not owned by government already, and the negotiation of an agreement for protection for those structures which remained in private ownership. And this is kind of the key element for me, these, uh, basically this, this, uh, 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 re the responsibility for these kinds of no negotiations at the local level. Now, in many cases, the extension of a measure of protection to a site is, is basically unproblematic. Um, ancient sites such as Sarnath and Sanchi are considered to be government property in this, uh, already. The late 18th century tomb of Lal Khan, which I mentioned before, which is here, um, is a also, which is basically a, a key uh, regional example of a very late uh, Islamic architecture within India, within uh, Banaras, sorry, um, is also deemed to be in government hands uh, by the 19th century. This is because Lal Khan had the good fortune of being buried atop a ridge in the city, which is considered crucial for the city's um, uh, defense. Its clear lines of sight were noted. Um, and whenever the army had charge of this, they, could, uh, they would always say that they could not guarantee that they would not blast a hole through the middle of it, basically. Um, ownership by the colonial state was also to be assumed within one prominent category of historic monuments. Uh, namely sites associated with the presence of the British dead. That's the grave of Colonel Pogson, church to center, buried in unconsecrated ground near the Awad and Rohilkhand Railway, and a memorial for British officers killed in 1781, the 1780, uh, 1781 uprising of the Banaras Raja Chait Singh, um, are perceived as already being under British protection uh, by virtue of the state's appropriation of this land through kind of a physical internment. Okay, um, and in the, it's hard to kind of get a sense of what what this place is, but this is um, uh, this is used as a workshop now by um, by uh, uh, local craftsmen. But right in the middle there is uh, is the grave, uh, and there are f uh, four uh, British officers buried there. In other cases, however, determining ownership or even guardianship of a historic site often proved to be problematic. And thus required that the bureaucratic state enter into a series of transactions at the local level to determine the site's ownership status. This was particularly the case when the monument in question was embedded within a heavily populated urban context, or when still utilized as a religious structure. On the identification of a historic site, the district commissioner, usually through the office of the collector or the sub-collector, set out to make the determination through an examination of relevant documentation, or an assessment of traditional rights. As an example, we might begin with the partially ruined Shiva temples of Ahugi in Mirzapur district. The collector of Mirzapur and subsequently the commissioner of Benares in 1930 accepted through a series of personal and lettered exchanges that the Zamindar and the villagers of Ahugi uh, were to be considered the rightful custodians of this set of temples outside their village by right of traditional guardianship. 
The collector was thereafter empowered by Act 7 to negotiate an agreement with those persons for the temple to remain under their immediate control, but with the provision that the ASI, the Archaeological Survey, and the Provincial Public Works Department had free access at all times to them in order to effect needed repairs. In the case of mosques, such agreements of protection were most often negotiated with the recognized caretakers, um, such as in the case of the Darahara Mosque above Panchaganga Ghat. Okay, and this is uh, usually referred to as uh, Arungseb's Mosque. As the mosque was considered to be a Badshahi building, that is, it had belonged to the Mughal Emperor, no owner was deemed traceable in the 1920s. And so the order of protection under Act 7 was negotiated with an individual who still possessed a farman appointing his ancestors as the Kadim, the caretaker. The protection of this mosque was deemed to be of the highest importance to the archaeological survey because, of course, its lofty minars were thought to add significant visual interest to Benares' picturesque waterfront vista, although the minars, of course, are now much shorter than they used to be. Similarly, the Ganj-e-Shahidan Mosque, rumored to have been constructed by Mahmoud of Ghazni, while of limited aesthetic interest, was deemed important enough for a regime of conservation by the colonial government uh, due to its apparent age. It was, at, uh, in the 1920s, thought to be the oldest mosque in the city. Um, it is not, but by any stretch of the imagination, it's actually uh, dates to the mid-Mughal uh, mid period, probably. In this case, however, any measures imposed by government, including the removal of the ubiquitous whitewash, would have to be agreed with the owner, Halu Khan, who apparently objected to the potential of this site entering into the English tourist circuit following its restoration. Um, and today the mosque is actually still also in private hands, um, although it is under 24-hour armed guard because uh, local people like to put shivalingas um, into the middle of it all the time. Uh, it is disputed site, obviously. Um, thus, it should be apparent that Act 7 of 1904, while in many respects a measure of bureaucratic centralization, in that the Act defines the nature of the relationship between central government and provincial government, was in fact much like uh, many of the earlier conservation measures described earlier. That is, in the terms of a bureaucratic despotism, as defined by John Stuart Mill, which really emphasizes the importance of local knowledge and local government in colonial governments, the Act, in fact, directs most decision-making about the implementation of conservation measures to a very local level indeed. This was somewhat ironically apparent even within the consultative processes during the Act's drafting in 1901 and 1902, when the Government of India circulated the Draft Act to provincial governments for comment. In turn, the Government of the Northwestern Provinces, for example, circulated it to its commissioners, its chief engineers, um, and others, including all of its uh, uh, principal judges. At the core of the concerns raised about the Act was its apparent interference in the recognized rights of private property. In the opinion of Justice Banerjee, for example, of the High Court of Judicature at Allahabad, the Draft Act was somewhat drastic, in his words, in this sense. For in cases where owners of protected monuments, did, uh, were, uh, in cases where owners of protected monuments did not live up to their contracted responsibilities for oversight and care, private property might be expropriated. In other words, the justice was concerned that the colonial prerogative of historic construction would inevitably trump the rights of land ownership and forms of self-determination within wholly owned structures. This is later changed um, in the Act. Significantly, the whole process of declaring a monument within an inhabited urban context as a protected historic monument in the early 20th century by its transactional and highly localized nature, allowed for the disputation of the norms of Act 7 itself. This is so, I think, even if, in the end, this transactional process results in a general concurrence, as I noted earlier, the architectural conservation as a means to preserve the past and the present is a desired end in itself. Such discursive concurrence can be perceived clearly, for example, in the 1931 publication of the Kashitirta Suda Trust, Benares and its guts, it was called, um, which overtly links the physical restoration of Benares's waterfront to remembrance of the city's history and the strength of its contemporary institutions. Now, in the last section here, 
um, I want to just go through a couple of good examples of this sort of disputation. Um, these are forms of disp disputation which are focused primarily upon uh, the use of a structure and its re the, related, the closely related notion of its historical character. And there are two principal examples I want to give you, one in Jaunpur um, and the second in Benares. In Jaunpur in 1925, Said Mansur Hassan, uh, the Mutawali, the trustee of the Khalis Muklis Mosque, a small but important Sharki era building, wrote to the collector of Jaunpur to ask that the government place the site under an Act 7 order of protection. He had two requests, however, which he made central to the negotiation. The first was that no one should be allowed to repair the building who was not himself a Muslim. He thus declared as integral to conservation practices the exclusivity of Muslim space. And in fact, in the discussion, this uh, was granted. The second request, however, was more problematic, in that Said Mansur Hassan declared the Khalis Muklis Mosque to be reserved for the exclusive worship of the small Shia community in Jaunpur. In many respects, this was a reasonable thing to ask, as the local and the imperial government had for several years fostered a working relationship with a group of exclusively Sunni notables in the city for the care and protection of Jaunpur's three largest mosques. In this request, however, Said Mansur Hassan was turned down, and for years afterwards the mosque was unprotected. And it is still a very important mosque, but not in particularly good condition even today. But perhaps the best example of the transactional nature of Act 7, which I've seen thus far in my digging in uh, the Varanasi archive, is the attempt to place the Arhai Kanguraki Masjid in Benares under an order of protection in 1921 and 1923. And this is the gateway to the mosque here. This is an attempt which was eventually abandoned by the United Provinces government for fear of inciting a riot. The Arhai Kanguraki Masjid, or the Two and a Half Dome Mosque, is uh, in the older northern portion of the city near Rajgat Station Road. It's one of two monumental Sultanate, Sultanate era structures in the city which remain largely intact. Both date to the 14th or potentially the 15th century. The other structure is an open pillared tomb probably of a Sharki governor, which can be found in Bakariyakund, a former reservoir close to the northern limits of the city. The site's known as Batiskamba. Okay, this is also, again, in this older northern portion of the city. The origins of these structures were, in the late 19th century, something of a mystery, or at least they were somewhat difficult to discern due to the apparent reuse of structural material. It's now clear that both uh, this, this notion of reuse is imagined. Uh, both structures are, in fact, original uh, constructions. What's important to note here is that they were often characterized not as Islamic structures, but rather as Buddhist. Despite the clear cultural importance and use value these structures had for Benares' contemporary Islamic community. Matthew Shering, a prominent missionary in the city, for example, argued in 1869 that the Bukhariya Kund tomb was a Buddhist remain on the basis of its stylistic affinities between its stonework and that found at nearby Sarnath. Muslims, he noted, occupied the site only. Similarly, in 1909, Edwin Greaves of the London Missionary Society described the Bukhariya Kund tomb as Mohammedan, but expressed its evident composition, uh, but emphasized in his description of it, its evident composition of pillars belonging to, quote, a much earlier period, again, with carvings which reminded him as well of the Damak Stupa at Sarnath. Even the Archaeological Survey of India re official reports of the late 19th, early 20th century occasionally referred to this structure as a Buddhist temple. Both men drew similar conclusions about the Arhai Kangura Mosque. Shering noted that while it was unquestionably exhibiting an Islamic style in the arrangement of its structural members, it was also composed principally of materials which he thought belonged to, quote, again, an epoch far more distant than the Mohammedan invasion, end quote. Shering speculated that the structure had probably originally been a Buddhist monastery, then converted to a Hindu mat before its current incarnation as a mosque. Greaves simply, in his 1909 description, repeats this characterization. For missionaries such as Shering and Greaves, the recovery of a Buddhist architecture in Benares served a very specific purpose, clearly. 
It is not just that their architectural histories conform to the tired colonial narrative of the Islamic despoilment of Hindu or Buddhist places of worship, but it is also that in these older northern parts of the city, the evidence of Buddhism's disappearance could arguably be made to conform to a narrative of ongoing religious change. That is, if Buddhism was an integral part of Benares' ancient history, this fact both undermined the notion of Kashi, or Hindu Benares, as perpetual, and held out the hope for a further religious change in a central representative city from Hinduism to, of course, Christianity. The question of how to bring the Arhai Kanguruki Masjid under a government conservation order would prove to be particularly problematic for local authorities, not only because of its potential symbolic value then, but as we'll see, also because the very nature of the mosque's custodianship was disputed among the local population. It is disputed between an educated religious elite and the impoverished Julaha weaver community that lived around the structure and prayed there. The mosque first came to government attention in 1916 in an archaeological survey inspection note. John Page, the superintendent responsible, wrote that the structure was well worthy of conservation and that its unique character in Benares should be preserved as unique character um, should be preserved as an emblem of the city's long and varied history. The mosque was in poor condition, however, having been badly damaged during heavy applications of whitewash. He thus recommended it for notification under Act 7, though he noted that, quote, the agreement with representatives of the Mohammedan community frequenting the mosque will be necessary in the matter of its appropriate repair, end quote. In 1921, when this was attempted, the district magistrate reported that some 500 men appeared at his courthouse in a state of high excitement, apparently under the impression that this was some sort of attempt by Christians to seize a Muslim place of worship. Given the characterizations of the site and its related structure by Sharing and Greaves, one could hardly blame them. The notion in Benares that a mosque had once been a Hindu structure was a dangerous one indeed. But the magistrate blamed the whole affair upon what he called certain notorious non-cooperators, but nevertheless recommended that the effort be abandoned so long as the local residents undertake, undertake to repair the mosque on their own. The following year, in 1922, Benares' district officer reported that as nothing had yet been done to conserve the structure, he requested that the several trustees allow the government to take uh, the necessary steps to repair it. They agreed, but before repairs could begin, they sought to consult the community for objections. Several of these were raised, largely to the effect that Muslims could take care themselves of their mosques, as they had done for centuries previous. The deputy collector, himself a Muslim, was sent to negotiate the possibility of government-supervised repairs um, and reported back. And I, unfortunately, uh, nowhere in any of the documentation I've seen is the name of the deputy collector uh, mentioned. Um, he reports back that while the leading gentleman of the Muhalla were largely amenable to having the government intervene, the so-called bigoted objectors, the Julahas, could not be ignored, but might be assaged into allowing restoration work to go ahead unmolested. The archaeological survey superintendent again visited the mosque in December, and having spoken to the Mutawalis, the guardians, was again convinced that the site could and should be brought under government protection. By February of 1923, the deputy collector reported back, though, that the uh, uh, that basically the local Muslim population, the Julahas in particular, had themselves raised 400 rupees for the repair of the structure, and that these repairs were uh, going forward. This was the collector thought, um, and this might be the understatement of the of, of the decade really. Quote that this was a quote strong indication that they do not want government to undertake conservation work on their behalf. End quote. The guardians of the mosque, Mir Muhammad Nawab and Sheikh Walidad, were apparently still willing to allow government protection, but they just simply could not convince the local Julaha population of its advantages. In such a situation, without the general support of the local community, the guardians' wishes had to be ignored in the interests of public safety. On hearing the news, the archaeological survey superintendent expressed his obvious disappointment, saying he would be pleased to give them advice if they wanted it. Um, needless to say, there's little recognition on the part of Curzon or the imperial government that Indians uh, could themselves provide for the maintenance and protection of structures. So this is integral um, to the legislation of 1904. But also integral to Curzon's view of conservation is the sense that these structures, whether they're 
uh, out in the middle of the countryside or in uh, an urban location need in essence to be removed from their everyday use, placed in a kind of a stasis, symbols of a particular historical moment or a particular historical trajectory. This is what Curzon often called the recovery of buildings from profane or sacrilegious uses. Um, in the case of the Arhai Kanguruki Masjid, we have, I believe, a forceful illustration of the use of the transactional nature of Act 7 by a local Indian community to assert a form of ownership of a historic site, a claiming for it, in essence, of a different sort of historical narrative than might have been imagined for it through colonial conservation. That is, the patrons of the mosque wished it to remain an Islamic space, <coughs> even if a whitewashed one, rather than potentially a symbol of the city's Buddhist past. There is also here clearly an element of class conflict within the Banarsi Muslim community, although the dynamics of this particular neighborhood, and indeed this incident, I think still require further study. One can read Kirsten's imagining of the Conservation Act of 1904 and his particular intention to oversee the restoration of buildings to their original nature corresponds very closely to the Viceroy's own view of governance, a sort of unilateral imposition from the imperial center outward. In practice, the highly localized character of a bureaucratic despotism, as reflected in Act 7, meant that this was rarely realized, and the importance of local urban experiences came to the forefront in determining the outcome of conservation practices. Historical monuments were, in important senses, exemplars of the urban experience in North India, standing as manageable aspects of a city's contemporary, lived character and its history. But just as many Indian cities refused the panoptic demand of the colonial visitor, reflected in the inability to see Benares except for its waterfront. And this is importantly, I think, um, it's important to know that the waterfront is entirely privately owned and then and such is always outside the realm of Act 7. Um, local bureaucratic functionaries were largely unable to see the entirety of the bureaucratic impetus within the Conservation Act of 1904 and instead act principally to transact highly local matters within their constituencies. As inhabitants of the city and as functionaries in the bureaucratic despotism of the colonial state, they attempt to write the city without being able to read it in its geographical panoptic colonial form in essence frustrating the desire of the colonial state to both read and write the text of the city simultaneously through attributions of monumentality, historicity, and the practices of conservation. Or perhaps it was the case that within the bounds of a bureaucratic despotism, the colonial state was reading and writing the character of North India cities in an unacknowledged and poorly understood physical intimacy with Indians, which the very character of urban life necessitated. Thank you.